Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. In January 1897, the body of Elva Zona Heaster was found dead at the foot of her stairs by a young boy who had been dispatched to the house on an errand by her husband, Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe. The boy ran for his mother, who then called the local doctor and coroner. The doctor took over an hour to arrive, and by the time he did, Shoe had carried his wife's body upstairs, dressed her in a high-necked dress with a stiff collar, laid her out on the bed, and covered her face with a veil. When the doctor attempted to examine Elva, Shu sobbed and cradled her head, and even at one point became violent when the doctor tried to take a closer look at bruises he noticed about Elva's neck. At that point, the coroner ended his examination and left the house. Elva's death was listed as everlasting faint, and then was changed to childbirth. Four weeks later, Elva's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, claimed the spirit of her daughter had appeared to her in a dream and declared that her husband was cruel, had abused her, and eventually murdered her by breaking her neck. To demonstrate this, the ghost turned her head around until it was facing backwards. Armed with this story, Mary Jane visited the local prosecutor and begged her daughter's body be exhumed. It was, and was given a three-day autopsy, at which they found her neck was indeed broken and her windpipe smashed. Shu was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife. Turns out, Shu had been married twice before. One former wife left him due to abuse, the other died under mysterious circumstances. During the trial, the ghost was brought up one time by the defense in an attempt to prove Elva's mother an unreliable and unstable witness. The prosecution, on the other hand, didn't need the ghost testimony to prove Shu's guilt, so while the ghost may have instigated the investigation, it was not ultimately what led to a guilty verdict and put him away for life. However, I have a story to tell you that happened over 200 years before, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, where just that happened. And it still stands today as the only case in American history where the testimony of a ghost led to a murder conviction and execution. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. Thomas Sr. and Rebecca Cornell were originally from England, where they married in 1620. Thomas was in his 30s, and Rebecca was about 20. Seven years later, their child Thomas Jr. was born. Some records have as many as 20 children born to the Cornells, but for the purposes of this bit of history, let's focus on Thomas Jr. The Cornells left England for Boston, where they arrived in 1638. They were some of Boston's very first settlers. Their tenure in Boston was cut short, though, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was divided over the antinomian controversy, which, while incredibly complex, 
I'll totally oversimplify by saying was a debate over biblical interpretation, and the Puritans who were in the minority were cast from the colony. The Cornells in particular sympathized with the more tolerant society Roger Williams was creating in Rhode Island. Thomas Sr. was involved in some side projects, but managed to secure a 100-acre land grant in Portsmouth, Rhode Island by 1644. That became the Cornell homestead. Thomas Sr. died February 1654, and most likely at the family home. He was also most likely buried at what is now called the Old Cornell Cemetery. After Thomas Sr. died, Rebecca put their son in charge of the estate. At the time, Thomas had been married to his first wife, but after her death, Thomas remarried a woman named Sarah. Apparently, Rebecca was not a fan of Sarah. Reportedly, Sarah had chased one of Thomas's children with his first wife with an axe, and Rebecca stepped in and prevented her from striking the child. If she hadn't, this would probably be a very different kind of haunting. On a cold winter night in 1673, Rebecca Cornell and Thomas had an hour-long conversation before a dinner of salted mackerel, which Rebecca declined to eat because she said it made her dry in the night. According to Thomas, that evening, Edward, his son, went to Rebecca's bedroom to see if she would have her evening milk. There he found some sort of fire on the floor, but it was so dark he needed a candle to further illuminate the scene. Sounding the alarm, Edward ran for help. Henry Strait, a hired hand, ran into the room, followed by the boy with the candle and then by Thomas Cornell and his wife. The hired man saw the fire and raked it out with his hands, and then in the faint light shed by the candle saw a human body on the floor. According to rather strange testimony from Thomas, he supposed it to be a local Indian, so he shook the body and spoke to it in an Indian language. At that moment, Thomas Cornell saw the body closer and exclaimed, Oh Lord, it is my mother. After a rather swift investigation, the coroner declared that Rebecca's death had occurred by fire, that she had most likely dropped ash on herself while smoking her pipe. But our story, of course, does not end there. Four days after Rebecca was found dead, a man named John Briggs, often referred to as her brother, but the details of their relationship are debated and unclear, claimed to have been visited by the ghost of Rebecca. And according to him, she declared that her death was not an accident at all, that she was in fact murdered. According to records of the trial, Briggs says he was awoken by movement on the bed when he perceived a light in the room, like the dawning of the day, and plainly saw the shape and appearance of a woman standing by his bedside, whereat he was much affrighted, and cried out, In the name of God, what art thou? The apparition then claimed to be Rebecca Cornell. Then it said, See how I was burned with fire. Twice. The apparition did appear to be burned from the shoulders up. Briggs' story inspired one John Russell to come forward with revelations of his own. He claimed that shortly before Rebecca's death, an old friend of his named George Soule confided to him that on a visit to the Cornell house, Rebecca told Soule that she planned to move in with her other son, Samuel, but feared she would be made away with before that time. The citizens of Portsmouth became increasingly suspicious that Rebecca Cornell's death was no accident. It was no secret that the Cornell household was not a happy one. Very unusually for colonial America, Rebecca, not her 46-year-old son Thomas, was the head of her household. They lived in her home, and she was apparently not shy about exercising her authority and controlling the purse strings. In short, her middle-aged son was still dependent on his mother, and rumor had it that he greatly resented this fact. 
Briggs and Russell were convincing enough for the deputy governor to convene a new inquest, and Rebecca's body was exhumed in order for a more thorough autopsy. Two surgeons from Newport were called in to see if any wounds could be found on the dead woman. An examination by the doctors uncovered what they deemed to be a suspicious wound on her stomach. Did Thomas Cornell stab his mother, then use the fire to cover it up? This second inquest panel now ruled that Rebecca had died not only from burns, but from a suspicious wound. Thomas Cornell was put under arrest and a grand jury assembled. As the trial progressed, gossip and hearsay about the Cornell family was presented in droves. In addition to Thomas being unhappy with his living situation and Rebecca's apparent distaste for Thomas's second wife, Sarah, it was said that Rebecca was so miserable she had suicidal ideations about dying by knife or drowning. Others reiterated Rebecca's plans to leave the family in the spring to live with her other son, that she complained that Thomas was stingy with heating the house, forced her to do farm labor, and generally didn't meet her needs. For Thomas's part, he said that his mother in her lifetime had a desire to have a good fire, and further said that he thought God had answered her ends, for now she had it. Thomas was apparently not great at reading the room. Eventually, Thomas was sentenced and found guilty, largely in part to the testimony of Briggs and his encounter with Rebecca's apparition. The actual trial record reads, Whereas you, Thomas Cornell, have been in this court indicted and charged for murdering your mother, Mrs. Rebecca Cornell, widow, and you being by your peers, the jury found guilty. From thence on Friday next, which will be the 23 day of this instant month, May, about one of the clock, you're to be carried from the said goal to the place of the gallows and there to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, dead. Thomas denied his guilt up to the moment of his execution. Two years later, his wife, Sarah, was charged as an accessory, as was a local native person. They were not convicted and the use of spectral evidence in criminal court hearings became a point of concern in Rhode Island. A little late, I'd say. The investigation into Rebecca's death still stands as the only case in American history that includes spectral evidence in the conviction and execution of a killer. Today, the Valley Inn and Restaurant stands at the very site of the Cornell homestead. The original home burned down in the mid-1800s, but the existing home and restaurant were built on its original foundation basement and chimneys and almost exactly mirrors the layout of the original home. The family cemetery is on a now adjacent property that has been developed with condos. But if you know where to look, you can find a small trail at the end of one of the cul-de-sacs that will take you to Rhode Island Historical Portsmouth Cemetery 36, where the Cornells were all buried. But not Thomas. It was determined by the family that Thomas would be buried at the furthest point of the property and therefore the furthest distance possible from the mother he was accused of slaying. That property point? It's directly beneath the parking lot of the Valley Inn. The Valley Inn and restaurant today is run by owner Joe Ochi, whose father purchased the house in 1957 from a Cornell descendant. And being a Portsmouth resident, I can vouch that their pizza is the best in town and that Joe Ochi may be one of the most loved residents in town. I had been wanting to investigate the Valley Inn for years. Many had asked Joe, but he declined, stating that while he had heard of many experiences people had over the years, he wasn't ready to entertain it. But one week in the summer of 2020, Joe allowed Adam Barry and myself to investigate the building with our show Kindred Spirits, and the results were astounding. 
We'll talk to Adam in a little bit about his thoughts and theories on the location, but let me just give you an idea of some of the paranormal happenings reported there over the years. Items have been known to move on their own, including a bottle that once flew off a shelf in front of a number of patrons, a woman once claimed to have seen an apparition of a woman holding a bleeding child. Most people feel incredibly uneasy upon entering the basement, as it's the only original area of the Cornell house. Voices have been heard coming from empty rooms, shadows have been seen, and more than one person has been afraid to lock up at night while alone. So, being the first place Adam and I went knocking on the door to ask to investigate, usually people come to us. I thought it best if we have a chat with him about our investigation and thoughts on what's going on at the Valley Inn. That's coming up next. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I'm sitting here with someone I'm sure you're all familiar with, Mr. Adam Berry, who is my partner in crime on Kindred Spirits, but also one of my best friends in the whole wide world. And what's interesting about the Valley Inn is that Adam and I asked to investigate there. This was not a case that the owners came to us. It was a place that when I moved to Aquidneck Island, everywhere I went, everyone asked me if I knew about the Valley Inn. And when you drive by it, it looks haunted. It's a big, spooky, white Victorian that I wasn't even sure if it was actually open the first time I drove by it. But turns out it's very, very open. And as I said earlier, has the best pizza in Portsmouth. So all these things are good to know. But let's chat with Adam. So hi, Adam. Hey, I'm wondering why I didn't get any of that pizza. Uh, well, I think you were probably like low carb or something at the time. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, ghost carb, like too many carbs for ghosts. Uh, I will say we were very fortunate. Like every night, Joe and staff made us dinner. And so it was really great. That's one of the times we were completely spoiled in the food department while we were investigating. <laughs> so I know you completely trusted me on this because I came to you and I was like, Listen, there's this building in Portsmouth that we have to investigate. And I think I've been trying to get in there since season one. And pandemics obviously suck, it turns out. But it did give us the opportunity to actually get in there and investigate. And I think that Joe, the owner, was a lot more receptive at that time just because it was easier to close. And I'm sure he was looking for ways to get the word out. And so it was kind of the perfect storm. So I guess it was one of the few positives that came out of this awful last year or however long this is going on. But just when you rolled up to that place, what stood out to you the most? First off, what's crazy is I had heard about the case in terms of like, not from you, like I had just heard through the ether at some point in my life that somebody was convicted of murder by a ghost, right? When you told me that, because I think that was the, one of the first things you told me when we pulled up on that place. And you said, this is that place where 
the person was convicted of murder from the testimony of a ghost, I immediately lost my mind because I was like, oh my God, this is the place. Because A, it's so close to where we all live. And B, on the outside, it does have an old architectural feel. Like it looks sort of like the Amityville Horror House from the left side, but it's a restaurant, right? Like an old house with a really cool restaurant. And you would never, ever, ever think that this is that place where the ghost was like, he killed me, you know? And so I was very excited when we got there, to say the least. Well, yeah. And it was like I said before, it was kind of strange just because we didn't quite get asked there. We knocked on the door and we were like, hey, Joe. And so obviously there were paranormal claims involved, but they weren't really desperate for our help. It was kind of like this moment for us. It was this like bucket list item. It was sheer curiosity. And then we were like, if we go in there and investigate, what's going to happen? And so I think it was kind of this experiment per se. So what would you say was like your favorite part of that investigation? The sty. I'm just kidding. Should we talk about that? No. <laughs> I didn't talk about that. For anyone who watches the episode. <laughs> See, this is where you get the behind the scenes moments. So I had a, a really brutal sty in my eye. And we were under a very tight timeline. And so literally that entire investigation, they were filming me from one side. And then there's moments of interviews where half of my face is obscured by shadow. Nobody else knew. And so I was watching the episode and I completely forgot about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is that time. But like, no matter what happens to you, you always look great. And I feel like our crew has been with us so long. They know how to make us look our best on our worst days. You know, it's yes, when your eyes are swollen shut. It was so disgusting. So anyway, I'm I'm trying to block that out of my mind, but it keeps haunting me. It comes up in Facebook memories and stuff. So more terrifying than the ghost, I would say. But to the point, I think the most exciting thing for us. Well, I think the first thing that stood out for me was the actual testimony that was said and what the ghost, quote unquote, actually said to him, which wasn't he killed me. I think we found out that the ghost said, look how my body is burned. Look how my body is burned, right? The ghost did not say that person killed me. And I thought that was the most interesting and exciting things we first uncovered because for so many years, everyone had thought that this ghost said he killed me. And that's why this person was put to death. But that wasn't it at all, you know? Right. It was just that part of the testimony coupled with just insane gossip in the community is really what put Thomas Cornell to death. Obviously, the testimony of the ghost, which was included in the trial, was a big part of it. But she never said like, oh, hey, my son did it. It was just like, look how I'm burned. It was just so strange because I think when you hear it in lore as it's passed down, people think that this ghost must have said that he murdered her. But that's not what happened at all. I thought it was interesting that we kind of assumed that because Thomas was buried under the parking lot of the restaurant, that that was leading to some sort of unrest. But it, through our evidence and through use of like the spirit box and everything, it seemed like he was really happy not to be buried with his family. Yeah, it was like our modern day version of canceling somebody on social media, except it was through the family. And the family treated him like... He did it the whole time. He was already guilty before being proven innocent. The testimony of a ghost 
like sealed the deal, which is the most crazy thing in the world. And so when we're sitting there communicating with him, he's like, no, I'm cool. I don't want to be buried with my family on the other side of my property. I would rather just stay right here and, you know, I guess be at peace because they were not nice to him. No. And no one had investigated there like we did. Like I don't think Joe had ever let anyone in to investigate. And I remember one of the first EVPs we got, we were in the room. So I explained this earlier, but basically the house is built on the direct footprint of the original home. And the basement is original, the foundation is original, and the chimneys are original. So it basically completely mirrors exactly what the house looked like before. And so we were in the room that was the room with the fireplace where Rebecca Cornell was found. And we asked, was your death a murder or was it an accident? And one of the first EVPs we got just very clearly said accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rare that somebody speaks to us that quickly, I think. But our intention is well known. When we walk in, we present ourselves in such a way that I feel like whoever's there is eager to communicate. And I think our excitement to get into that space, they could tell. I mean, they could tell that we were very excited at the possibility of just investigating this location and kind of trying to solve this mystery. And I think when it said accident, we were like, okay, well, who is saying accident though? Is it Rebecca that's saying accident or is it somebody else saying accident and just like covering it up? Because, you know, the word accident is definitely, I mean, we asked, is it, was it a murder? Was it an accident? It says, you know, someone says accident, but like, what actually is that? It almost made us a little bit more confused. And when we had work a bit harder to be like, okay, well, who is saying accident? Right. And now, like you said in the beginning, like one of the byproducts of this investigation was that we kind of clarified a little bit of the history and not that it was hard to do, but just because it was something that had just been kind of passed down through word of mouth, like that kind of historic game of telephone for so long that people, they just kind of assumed that what she had said was so clearly like he murdered me. But that being said, how important do you think it is during these investigations that we and other investigators get our history correct? Oh, I think that's the most important. I mean, evidence is one thing, but getting the facts straight is the most important thing. Because if your facts aren't straight, like say you have a a wrong name, right? And then you keep getting EVPs or evidence that lead not to that name because it's wrong, then you're SOL pretty much because you're not doing it right. And so I think you and I tend to lean on the history because it's factual. So you might not believe in ghosts at all, but you cannot deny the factual history and the information that we have gathered for this location, right? Can't deny it. It's real. It's tangible. Here it is. Here's the paperwork. Here's the letters, whatever it is. And I think that helps us support our theories as to why the haunting is taking place. And if you're not looking at your history, if you're not doing any history, then you aren't actually ghost hunting. Okay. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, if you're not wearing nails, you're not doing drag. If you're not, if you're not doing your history, you're not doing ghost hunting. Okay. That's just plain and simple. I think that's the first time those comparisons have ever been made. (laughs) You're welcome. World, you're welcome. (laughs) I love it. So 
There were a lot of claims that came out of that building by the time we got there. You know, Joe is a very matter-of-fact individual. He's very New England. He's got a lot of history in that building. His father bought that building in 1957 directly from a descendant of the Cornell. So that was how long that building was in the family. But even so, you know, he kind of told me off the record that they'd been hearing kind of rumblings of things happening for decades. But his mom especially was very anti the ghost thing. And she had passed away a few years ago. So I think that's why we were able to kind of go in there and and investigate. I think that was part of it. But do you remember we heard about a woman who saw a woman holding a bleeding child in a room at one point? And then we also heard of objects being moved, like there was a, a bottle that went flying or something. Do you remember any other claims while we were there that people spoke of? Um, I remember they didn't like going into the basement because he was very much, he's a stoic, you know, he's a stoic individual. He runs a restaurant. He has a level head. And, you know, he said he wasn't that n- nervous about the things that were happening, I guess, in the restaurant per se. But he said the creepiest place was down in the basement. He was like going down there. He's like, I think he said one time he was working down there and something happened or he felt like he wasn't alone. It was just weird feeling he got or he saw something in the basement and he immediately stopped working, turned and left, like just left and locked the door. And remember being down there with you, that place is a different energy completely than the upstairs. And I think when we were getting evidence on the uh, SLS camera and somebody was standing in front of us, we got the sense that it might've known who that family was, but maybe was not connected to that family. In case people don't know, SLS stands for Structured Light Sensor. And so the idea behind it is that it sends out this kind of spray of like laser points. And if it detects something that is the shape of a human, it automatically maps out that shape and you can see it in front of you. And so they were using this for like gaming technology and security systems, things like that. And then the paranormal community adopted it and Upon realizing that sometimes they would aim this camera (laughs) at nothing, but yet they would get some sort of human shape and it would actually respond to you, like wave at you or walk away. And so we actually got a really strong hit on that in the basement where there was definitely a figure standing there. And I feel like I tried to reach out to it at one point. I can't quite remember, but. Yeah, and it had a visceral reaction to I think it had a visceral reaction to something that we said about the family. And it sort of was like, no, like almost like don't don't bring that up, which was kind of strange. And uh, of course, you know, when you get close to something like that, odds are it's not going to stick around too long. So you definitely reached out and it was sort of reaching out and then it was just like gone. I almost felt like just us being in that building and kind of talking about everything that had happened kind of woke it up a little bit, you know, because. As it stands, like the Valley Inn is very much a locals hangout. I think that's part of the reason why it does look like this big old Victorian house. And if you weren't local, you probably wouldn't think to go in there, you know, but you go in like we probably eat in there like, you know, once a month or so. And it's always bustling. It's always busy. And it's always people we know we run into like Charlotte's teachers and stuff. But no one's ever talking about what happened there. Like there's whisperings of it being haunted, but no one's ever really talking about it. And we had that building for five days straight where all we did was talk about what happened there. And so it makes me wonder if we just kind of woke it up a little bit. I definitely think so. We 
tend to stir up activity based on our actions and our intentions. And I think there's something about the two of us, the way we work together just facilitates the ease of communication. And it sounds strange, but you and I know if we walk into a space and we start chatting for a, a bit, something more than likely is going to happen. It might not be what we want to happen, but I think it's the way that we communicate. Our intention was very strong. We wanted to find the answer. We wanted to deep dive into this legend of a ghost convicting a man for murder. And it did not disappoint. By day two, totally knew why we were there. And they were more than willing to participate in this deep dive into this folklore because no one had talked about it, I'm sure, for many, many, many years. Yeah, I agree. I think we solved it in the sense that I know we've found what we believe to be Thomas Cornell's body. Joe suspected that he was buried under the parking lot. And so we actually brought a ground penetrating radar and used that to go through where we expected him to be buried. And sure enough, there was like an exact grave there. And I know our idea at the time was to erect some sort of you know, monument to him, some sort of gravestone, some sort of headstone. And we kind of fashioned this cross there for now. And I know, having been there a few times, that there's been no monument put up. Joe has not mentioned that anything else has happened. But honestly, every time I've been in there, it's been pretty busy. And so I'd love to like kind of pull him aside and ask him, you know, have you had any activity since we left? Did we rile anything up? Like, I know a lot more stories came out of the woodwork, and I'm sure more will come out once people hear this podcast. But I keep thinking, like, what did we do there? I don't know that we fixed it per se. I don't know that there was anything to fix, but I don't think we left it worse. But then I'm also thinking, you know, as time goes on, what happens when that building changes hands again? Like, this is only the second family who has owned it. What happens to the next people? I mean... I don't know. I mean, do you think it's a case of like, if people stop talking about it, then it sort of goes back into this dormant situation? You know, if it were ever to change hands and be bought by somebody who is really into the paranormal and they buy it for the sole purpose of continuing that communication. I mean, we've seen that in other locations where people buy buildings for the purpose of investigating it. And then it sort of gets riled up again or gets out of hand because of whatever is going on. Do you think that's more logical than us being like, oops? (laughs) (laughs) I do think that as we've investigated, we've seen that there's just certain people who kind of bring out spirits. It's not that they're haunted or that they're psychic. You know, they're just more open to the idea or more welcoming. And so I think it just depends on whoever decides to take it on next. Like, I don't think Joe's going away anytime soon. I do know that the real estate market here right now is pretty insane, though. So who knows who could end up in that place next? It's massive. It's much more residential than the kitchen and the restaurant on the side. So when I see buildings like that, I always wonder what's going to become of them. But now, you know, with this history coming out and with people knowing what happened there, I just wonder if that intention or that energy is going to start waking things up more. Well, think of it this way, though. So we were there for that, for the sole purpose of trying to solve this mystery, right? Like, that's why we were there. But we also investigated the apparition of the lady with the bleeding child. We reached out and we tried to figure out what that was. And we got no, we we didn't get any answers from that story or we didn't figure out what that was. 
And I think it's because, you know, our intention and purpose at that point was to solve this mystery. They knew that they came forward. We sort of worked together, <laughs> you know, the spirits and us and the two of us worked together to sort of solve this mystery. But then you have that other thing, right? So what if that other thing now is like, okay, my turn. Yeah. I mean, you have over 250 years of history in that spot. And the fact that the family just kind of buried down the hill behind this new condo development, you know, there's any number of things that could rile things up. And so every time I go in there, I'm always kind of looking out the corner of my eye, wondering if I'm going to see anything, wondering if I'm going to hear anything. I mean, I would say that anyone who's listening, who's had experiences there, I would love to hear them because I would love to kind of build a little more of a portfolio of ghostly experiences at the Valley Inn. <laughs> so because I, I feel like there's a lot more. And we were talking about Joe earlier. He's just kind of so no nonsense. Like I feel like a ghost could just walk right in front of him and he would be like, oh, I must have eaten something bad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, he's too busy. Honestly, he is too busy to be focusing on ghosts. He's like, I got to serve the real people, you know? Yes. So I think that we did the right thing. I think we clarified history, which was great. Um, you know, I remember when that episode came out, when we started talking about it, a lot of people brought up the Greenbrier ghost, which I talk about at the top of this podcast, because that was another really famous kind of murder trial involving the testimony of a ghost. But the ghost testimony wasn't uh, used by the prosecution. So the, the person wasn't actually convicted based on it. So this one still remains the only case in American history where someone was convicted and ultimately executed based on the testimony of a ghost. What happens, yo, yo, what happens when we are investigating a location? And what if we got accused, like falsely accused by a ghost? What if it happens to us? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, no matter what the ultimate outcome of that building is, I think it's got a lot more history left in it. But right now, I just love that it's this cool local hangout that serves really great food. And I would say probably 80% of the people who walk in there have no idea what happened there. No, not at all. And maybe that's for the best because the ghosts are at this point, I think they're satisfied with what we did. So but let's not stir the pot anymore. <laughs> well, we'll see what other ghosts might make themselves known there. So again, everyone is listening. I really want to know if you've had anything else happen at the Valley and I'll put it out there on social media and things and we'll see if we can get some more really great ghost stories from the place. So Mr. Barry, thanks for joining me. I feel like you're probably going to be on a few of these. Oh, good. Anytime that we can do a deeper dive into any of our locations because we've done a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Well, I'll see you soon. And maybe we can go to the uh, Valley Inn and grab some dinner. Yeah, pizza for sure. Okay. All right. Talk later. Thank you so Bye. much. The paranormal and historical significance of the Valley Inn cannot be denied. Remember that if you're ever taking a trip or vacation to Newport, Rhode Island, take a side drive over to Portsmouth and look for the large, white, looming Victorian on the side of the very busy East Main Road. Think of everything that has happened in that spot over the last 250 years, and if you're brave enough, stop in for a meal and tell Joe that we said hi. Oh, one more bit of trivia for you. After Thomas Jr.'s execution, his second wife gave birth to their daughter, Innocent Cornell, fitting name. Innocent went on to marry Richard Borden, and they had multiple children. Son Thomas Borden would end up being Lizzie Borden's great-great-great-grandfather. So Innocent Cornell Borden and Richard Borden were effectively Lizzie Borden's great, 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 great 
grandparents. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Amy Bruni. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Taylor Hagerdorn is the show's researcher. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.